If you have a, a Bible with you, please open it to John chapter 5. And we'll be beginning to read here in just a moment from verse 30 to the end of the chapter. Now when someone makes audacious claims or you hear of a fact that is hard to believe, you should always seek out ways to verify such information instead of just passing it along. I uh, read this week that in the 13th century, Pope Gregory IV declared, interestingly enough, that black cats were instruments of Satan. Um, Now, if you think that's weird, I've heard uh, Pat Robertson declare that white bread was of the devil uh, a couple of times, but uh, this pope has a little bit more power than Pat Robertson, and he declared that black cats were instruments of Satan. And so he ordered... Uh, a a uh, well-placed order to eliminate all the black cats in Europe, okay? Uh, And because his servants are dutiful to the Pope, they started to eliminate all of the black cats. And interestingly, they think that this is one of the reasons why the Black Plague spread throughout Europe so fast uh, was because the cats, having been killed, they weren't allowed to kill the rats who allowed the fleas to get on everybody else and to spread the Black Plague, I don't know if that is necessarily true, but it's an interesting fact nonetheless. Richard Nixon apparently was an accomplished musician and could play up to five instruments. And by instruments, I don't mean deceit and lying. I mean actual musical instruments he was capable of playing. These are interesting facts. And I've got many more for you, but absolutely none of them have any impact on your life. They they matter not at all. And you might want to think twice before passing them on because I looked them up on Wikipedia, which is a storehouse of all of the valuable information that we have in the world. Nevertheless, when it comes to things that are more important than that, we need more than just somebody's word for it. We've got to have more to go on than just whether or not we can look it up on the internet. And Jesus, throughout this fifth chapter, has made important claims on himself. And these claims are not just neat facts that you can take forward. These claims have the greatest impact on your life that they could possibly have. It is the difference between, in his words, judgment and condemnation or eternal life. He doesn't take this lightly. You're responding to what he is claiming to be true and what he is claiming himself to be is the most important thing that you could ever, ever figure out. It is helpful, then, that Jesus doesn't simply want us to take his word for it. He knows, rightly, the commands of Deuteronomy 19.15. There we read that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. There the commandment is for the negative, that if you are charged... You can't simply have one person come up against you. There have to be multiple witnesses to the thing. But we can also assume that it is also positive. That in order for something to be shown to be true, two or three witnesses must be there. And frankly, it should come as no surprise that our Lord does just that. Today, while we've heard these great claims of what Jesus is and who he is forever and ever He has more than just his own word to back that up. We have three witnesses that Jesus will call forward today to testify to the quality of what he has claimed. And what has he claimed? There in verse 30, we have this nice summary of what Jesus has claimed. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Makes it very clear. I am 
of the Father. I am from the Father. I, I don't judge on my own. I do nothing on my own, but whatever the Father shows me, whatever the Father tells me, that is what I do, and all that I do is right and good. He has the authority. He has the power. He has the omnipotence. He has everything going for him to be able to judge. So, what does Jesus call forward for witnesses? Let us begin reading in verse 31 to the end of the chapter. Jesus, our Lord, says this, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice in him, willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of our God. Jesus begins at the, the front of this. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. He says, listen, you don't need to listen to me. You don't need to hear my witness for these things. You have made the implication that I am equal with the Father. I have given that a strong affirmation, but you don't need to listen to any of my reasonings for it. I have three witnesses that I'm going to call forward to make my case before you. The first is the testimony of man. It is the testimony of man. He calls forward John the Baptist again. He says, listen, let's, let's listen to what John the Baptist has to say. You know that he is worthy of listening to. You, you sent people to him. You sent them to him, presumably because you thought that he was the prophetic voice calling out in the wilderness. You have affirmed his ministry by doing this. What does he say? Back in John chapter 1, we read so many months ago these verses, beginning in verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said. After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen 
and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Listen, John the Baptist gave testimony to who Jesus was. He claims that he didn't know him. He, he, he wasn't like they were in cahoots. He didn't know him. But when he saw him, when he baptized him and he saw the Spirit fall down upon him, John had it revealed to him exactly who he was. And what does he say that he is? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is greater than John. He was revealed through John's ministry. In other words, all of John's ministry, as important as it was, was simply to point to Jesus. The Spirit of God rests on him. He gives out the Spirit of God. It comes to people only because he is the one who gives it. God the Father has given John this testimony, and Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Jesus amazingly says that. He is telling them these things, not so that you would believe in Jesus, but that you might believe in John, even, so that you would be saved. He says, John's witness is so important that your salvation rests on it. You don't want to believe my words. You don't want to believe who I say that I am. That's fine. Listen to John. There's salvation in it for you. He says, John was a bright and shining lamp. The truth that the light was coming into the world came forth from John. He gave right and true knowledge about that light. And you believed in him for a while. The implication there is that you don't any longer. You rejoiced in him, but that time has passed. In other words, what Jesus is doing is you shouldn't ignore that witness. You, you might not want to listen to me. You, you might think that I'm telling you this because it's for my advantage. You might think that I'm making myself into something that I'm not because that's just what people of the world do. And he says, but long before I ever uttered any of these things, John the Baptist was talking about me in the exact same way. We would do well then to listen to John the Baptist. We don't need to rely only on the words of Christ to know who he is. This is one of the important things about John the Baptist. That before Jesus showed up on the scene, God sent someone down in order to proclaim Jesus before Jesus ever got there. So that you would have an extra witness. So that we would know even more firmly who Jesus is. But let us not kid ourselves. We sit in a more privileged position than any of the Jews here do because we don't just have the witness of John the Baptist. We have the witness of all of Christian history. When we talk about the witness of man, we don't just mean that John witnessed to him. We mean that all of Christian history witnesses to who Jesus is. He claims to be equal with God. He claims to be the judge of all the earth. He claims to be the one who gives salvation to all people. The power of Christ's work and the witness that is born to him isn't limited just to John the Baptist, but to everyone who is saved from that point on out by the work of Jesus Christ. This work flows down through the river of time and it comes to us then in full torrent. The early church is persecuted. It's surrounded by powers that are against it and it endures because of their witness to the truth. They were persecuted. They were taken to court routinely burned and destroyed by the power of Rome. And yet, all to the end, they held up their testimony and their witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. So much that Tertullian would say, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more they killed Christians, the more Christian witness went forward. That seed continued to spread in missionary zeal with people like we talked about last week, St. Patrick. He, in the 5th century, takes the gospel to Ireland 
and he proclaims to a people who know nothing of the Lord, the name of the Lord God, Jesus Christ. Even as the earthly powers began to wither the truth of the church, God's power was witnessed by those who were willing to give their lives to stand for the truth of the gospel. Think of Jan Hus in the 13th and the 14th century, John Wycliffe in the 14th century, Martin Luther, who faced numerous threats on his life to stand for the truth of the gospel. They did this against the church. They did this against the powers of the world. They did it against the selling of indulgences and the right ordering of the church, both in ecclesiological matters and simply in the fact that priests weren't set aside as somebody who were special and above the rest of the people. The modern church has survived attacks of modernism, of postmodernism, of secularism, of socialism, of capitalism, of communism. All of the isms that are arrayed that would take you one further step away from your devotion and your commitment to Jesus Christ. The church has reigned over all of them. It has endured them and it will continue to endure them. Because the flow of all of Christian history is a testimony to the greatness and the power of Jesus Christ himself. That is not to be undervalued. But you don't just have to rely on church history. You don't have to just rely on John the Baptist. You have your own testimony. God has worked in you. If you are a believer, you shouldn't be left wondering what he's done in everybody else without looking to what he has done in you. This is not a small bit of testimony. Paul encourages you to continually look back, specifically on your baptism, as something that has saved you. Romans 6, 3-5 Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Galatians 3.27, much the same. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul says, think back to your baptism. Think back to your testimony, the affirmation of the church that you are in Christ. That ought to be a sign of God's working in you. It ought to be a sign that you are united with Christ. It ought to be a sign to you of the truth of what Jesus Christ has proclaimed over you, that you are indeed his and that you are saved. He has indeed forgiven your sins. He has indeed united you to God because he is whom he claims to be. But not only that, you can hear how he's worked in history. You can hear how he's worked in John the Baptist. You can hear about the goodness of God as a testimony in your own life, but also in the lives of other people. One of the best things that we have done around here in a long time, I think, is having prayer meeting on Wednesday night and allowing people to give their testimonies in those prayer meetings. If you have missed coming to those, you have missed out. It is helpful. It is helpful to know that God is not someone who is working only in history. This book was finished by the first century. It was done and completed. But God has continued to work amongst his people. It didn't end when Martin Luther finished his life in the 16th century. He continues to work among his people. And it's not just in China, and it's not just in Africa. It's here. He works among his people. And so every Wednesday night when we have prayer meeting, 
Someone gets up at the end of it and talks about the goodness of God in them. How he has changed them from sinner to saint. How he has revealed himself to them and through the gospel has saved them. It is important to hear those testimonies. Because it is an encouragement that Jesus Christ is who he has claimed to be. That he is who he always will be. That he is consistent in all things. There is no shadow of change. Who he was to John the Baptist is who he has been throughout church history. It's who he is to you, and it's who he is to all of the believers. Don't, don't discount the testimony of what God has done. The testimony of man is powerful, and it is a witness to the truth of what Jesus claims that he is, the very Son of God, the very one who is able and willing to take your sins away. But we need to be clear. That testimony, that witness, is powerful and it is good, but it can hardly stand on its own. Talk to Mormons ever. They will typically, when you catch them, you ask them about the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon or you ask them about the nature of their theology and how it doesn't line up with the New Testament at all. If you try to catch them in any of this, they resort to a statement, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard them make it anymore, but they used to make it, they've got a burning in their bosom. They don't say that because people just snicker when they say the word bosom. So they don't say that anymore, but they mean, I, I have a, a burning conscience. I'm, I, I believe that it's true. I, I think deeply that the Book of Mormon is true. I think that that's part of our witness. We think that it's true because it's happened to us. But that is not the only witness we have. We need more witnessing than that. And so Jesus gives us a second witness, a second testimony, and that is the testimony of miracles. We have the testimony of man, but we also have the testimony of miracles in verses 36 through 38. Jesus says this, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. What is this testimony that Jesus has? Look at, he says, look at the works the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. How do we know, Jesus, the Father sent you? He says, why are you talking to me right now? You're talking to me right now because I healed a dude who hadn't walked for 38 years and you got in a huff about it because it was on the Sabbath. But let's not forget the Sabbath controversy came up because I healed someone. I healed him by speaking to him. I didn't have to rub dirt on his leg. I didn't have to pray. I simply healed him be very clear. This is a obvious, obvious demonstration that I have been sent from God. Now you could deny this. Plenty of the Jews tried to. After seeing Jesus cast out a demon in Matthew 12, the Pharisees heard of it and said, well, it's only by Beelzebub that he casts out demons. And Jesus said to him, honestly, you can see him kind of giving him that really sarcastic look like that. That's your logic? That's what you're thinking? I cast out the prince of demons, or I cast out demons because I, I'm like associated with the prince of demons? He says, a house divided against itself can't stand. Like, what, what good do you think Satan's doing there? He, he is not as, in other words, Jesus is looking at them and saying, Satan's not as stupid as you are. He, he understands how this game works, and the game doesn't work the way you think it does. The most obvious implication is because Jesus is doing this work in the name of the Father and he is doing good works in the name of the Father that he is actually from the Father. This comes up again in John 9 when the blind man whom Jesus heals, 
is standing before those who are in leadership over Israel who know much more than he does. And he gives them an answer they don't like. They revile him. And in verse 28, they say, You are Jesus' disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man answers, That's amazing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't do anything. This uneducated man stands before me and he says, You're a bunch of nincompoops. It's very simple. He opened my eyes. Where should he have come from? Why do you care if he came from Nazareth or from Bethlehem or from Judea? What does it matter? He's clearly from God. Because only somebody from God could do this. Jesus says, look at the works that I'm doing. They are a clear testimony that I am from God and I'm doing the work that God would have me do. Now we sit in a much better position than the Jews when it comes to hearing the testimony of how Jesus Christ has upheld his glory and his honor throughout the ages. We are, in one very clear sense, in a much worse position than these people when it comes to the miracles because we don't get to see them. This miracle was done and the man was still right there. They could have gone and hunted him down. This is exactly what happens in John 9. They hunt him down again and again and he says, yes, I was blind, but now I see. They can go and they can talk to Lazarus. They can talk to his sisters and say, was he in the tomb? Yeah, he was in the tomb. Four days, four days. They can go and talk to people who watched him multiply bread and loaves. They can talk to people. Some of them would have witnessed these things. We don't get that type of eyewitness account. We are many, many, many years away from that. Frankly, many would say that these miracles are simply a figment of people's imagination. They're something that they've written down simply to make Jesus more palatable or to make him seem more powerful or to make him seem more godlike, whatever they would like to put on that. And they would say, listen, we know that miracles can't happen. I've even heard people go so far as to say that science has disproven that miracles can happen, which is such a ridiculous thing. Now, I'm not, I don't mean like people on the streets, like, World-class philosophers like David Hume have reportedly argued against miracles because they just don't happen. Dude, that's like the definition of a miracle, right? Listen, if, if science is only reporting on what naturally happens, it can't disprove things that don't naturally happen because that's the whole nature of miracles. It's like people can't read sometimes. This is the whole point of miracles is that they're not natural. And I don't know how science disproves something like that anyway. You can't disprove something that you are incapable of doing. I can't just flap my arms really hard and say that because I don't take off, the man can't fly. That's not disproving anything. Because science can't replicate miracles doesn't mean that miracles can't happen. It just means that science can't make miracles. It's a silly argument. Not quite as silly, but close to it are people who trust in science, or they claim to trust in science, because science is based on proof. They say things like, well, listen, I'm a reasonable person. I'm not stuck in an age where I need myth 
and I need fairy tales. That's my favorite is when they call it a fairy tale. Is I need fairy tales to make me comfortable, or, and I need fairy tales to explain the world around me. I believe, I believe in proof. And they would hear us talking about testimony, and they'd say, see, you're getting everything secondhand. How, how do you know you can trust this? I, I need proof. I need to see it. It's in the pudding. I need to taste it. Okay. If you ever run into somebody like that and say, do you believe in evolution? They'll say, yeah. Yeah, I believe in evolution. It's science, man. Science, man. And ask them, say, okay, explain evolution to me. And don't, don't let them slip out with just like a general explanation of evolution. I mean, make them explain evolution to you. Ask them about the Precambrian explosion. Ask them about how often the probability of mutations happening in DNA will result in a positive mutation for that creature. Ask them for the bottleneck effect. Ask them how genetic drift actually affects the changing of species. Ask them for the way in which chemicals react with one another in order to propagate these changes forward, how we got from single-celled organisms to photosynthesis and from photosynthesis onto animals. Ask them to explain that. Ask them if they've seen the fossil evidence. And I don't mean seen by being shown a couple of cladograms in a biology book. Ask them if they've seen it. Because I will guarantee you, 99% of biologists haven't seen it. I'm not saying this to discredit it. I'm saying it because people who believe in science believe in science because they believe in the testimony of people who have seen the proof. They don't believe in the proof. They believe in people telling them what the proof is. There's nothing wrong with that because, lo and behold, that's what we be doing. But nevertheless, they are hypocritical in the most obnoxious way when they say, well, I just believe in proof. No, you believe in testimony. You just don't believe in our testimony. But it's testimony all the way down. They don't believe in reality because they've had it proven to them. They don't believe in reality because they can spout out what the general or specific relativity theorems of Einstein are or what the dual slit experiment is or the wave particle duality of nature is. They can't explain any of that. They believe in it because they've stood and they've had people tell them, I'm real. So, okay, this isn't a dream. I believe you're real. Again, we're not trying to negate science by saying this. And I don't mean to make science sound any less than what it is. I like science. I think that it's important. But to think that people believe in proof instead of testimony and instead of witness is ridiculous. They believe in those things because they believe in the people who tell them those things are true. Jesus is saying the miracles that have come down to us have come down to us by people who are reliable. Let's think through this for a minute. Notice what Jesus says here in verses 43 and 44. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. These scientists come in their own name. They are not pushing somebody else. They are pushing themselves. He goes around, Jesus turns around and he says this, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Listen, these men, from Bill Nye the science guy to Carl Sagan and all the way back, make their livings off of you believing their testimony. They make their livings off of it. Bill Nye has gotten rich getting you not to believe in the proof of science, but to believe the fact that he opens his mouth and he speaks the truth. That's where he makes all of his money from. And again, I'm not knocking that. But it's wrong for him to deny the fact that our testimony has just as much backing to it. The Bible reports miracles. 
and it reports miracles from people who gain absolutely nothing from miracles. What did the early church get from this? The miracle of all miracles was a resurrection. You know what the Greeks hated? The material world. The idea of the resurrection was phenomenally stupid to them. The reporting of these miracles happened because these miracles happened. The early church didn't gain anything by it. They, it didn't make Jesus seem more spectacular. You could throw out every miracle that Jesus ever did, and raising from the grave is still pretty spectacular. They didn't need any of that. The miracles are there so that we would see and trust that Jesus Christ is whom he actually is. And yet we are told, we are told, that we should believe in science because these people give us testimony, but they actually gain from that testimony. We're not here claiming that we can do miracles. We're here claiming that Jesus can do miracles. Jesus showed up not to gain glory and honor for himself. He knew that the Father would give him that. He came to uphold the work that the Father had been doing, that he saw the Father doing and he himself was doing. He comes in the Father's name. Listen to the testimony of the miracles. You can trust that miracles happened. You can trust the reports of Scripture that they occurred. And in doing so, you can trust that the same Jesus that you have given your life over to is powerful over wind, over rain, over matter, over life, over death, over all things. He is powerful over them because he has not only done these things, but he has raised himself from the dead. Even today, friends, trust in the testimony of miracles. Third, the testimony of Moses. Jesus here claims a third line of testimony. That is of Scripture. Moses gets special attention here as the author of the first five books of our Bible. Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. He says, It's not a, not a bad place to go looking for it. It's not wrong so much. But the implication is pretty clear from what Paul says. You, you, you don't find eternal life in the Old Testament. Let that sink in, please. And I, I don't mean this in any way, shape, or form to downplay the Old Testament, but he looks at these Jews and he says, your eternal life could not possibly rest in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament doesn't therefore get nullified, and it doesn't therefore downplay its significance, but its significance is redirected. It doesn't give eternal life, but what it does, it's a big shining arrow pointing to where that eternal life comes from. What does he say? He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And he says, rather, it is they that bear witness about me. They are pointing to me. They don't tell you where you can find eternal life. They, in the Old Testament scriptures, have no means of giving you eternal life. But what they do is they point you directly toward me. It is a third witness and a third testimony that we get about the nature of Jesus. Again, this is something that the Bible upholds. So if you were to turn back to 2 Timothy, you don't have to turn there. 2 Timothy 3, in this very famous passage where Paul is upholding the, the God-inspired nature of the word including at that time the Old Testament and explicitly the Old Testament, he says this to Timothy, right when he's about to talk about how the word of God in the Old Testament was breathed out by God, before he gets there, he says this to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, 
knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that is the Old Testament, from childhood you've been acquainted with those things, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Not which are able to save you. That's not what he says. He says they're able to prepare you to make you wise for the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. That is, they point you towards Jesus so that you would be wise when you saw him, you would know him. We recognize who Jesus is because we know the Old Testament well and the Old Testament has a very direct arrow to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. To put some flesh on this, let's think through, although we could pick numerous lines of testimony throughout the Old Testament, let's just think through one and only two examples of one. And that is the promises that God has made in the Old Testament. One of the very first promises he makes is to a snake in chapter 3, verse 15 of the book of Genesis. He says to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a sense in which what God is claiming here is that the snake is the enemy of the people of God. He is the enemy that will always drag them down. And while he might nip them, he might get them at times, eventually there would come one who would crush his head. And we get hints in the book of Genesis that this is starting to come true. We have God calling Abraham. And we have the people being brought down into Egypt so that God can bring them up out of Egypt. And they have a very clear enemy at that time. Egypt, who is oppressing them and persecuting them. And what does God do? He drowns their army. Not only does he bring 10 plagues, but then he takes them out into the desert and drowns them in the sea. Taking the promised land. Again, God sends his people in and he himself drives out the people before them. In the book of Judges, where these things might be hinted at, that this is coming true, the book of Judges makes explicit in a couple of places that there is the crushing of the heads of the enemies of God's people. Jael and Sisera, very famously, as that woman puts a tent peg through the head of that general. They, of course, because this is such an awesome event, put this into song, which we won't sing, but we will read from Judges 5. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to that tent peg, and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. That's pretty brutal. She crushed his head. Later on, Abimelech, the one traitorous son of Gideon, who kills all of Gideon's sons and, and basically makes himself a plague upon Israel, is killed as another woman throws a millstone out of a tower and it crushes his head. The most famous of all battles in the Old Testament, where David shows that he is the promised king, does so by going to a river, finding five smooth stone, chucking one at Goliath with a slingshot and hitting him where? Straight in the temple, crushing his skull. And then what does David do? He cuts his head off. And yet, through all of this, as God is clearly showing that his people can overcome their enemies, and he is showing that they are starting to stomp on the snake, he keeps living, and he keeps living, 
and he keeps living. He wounds his head, but he's never crushed. And by the time you finish, God's people have had victories over them by every single one of their enemies. The the nation of Israel, as it used to be, exists no more. The people of Judah are about the only people left, and they come back in shambles to their home country. And by the time the New Testament opens, Rome is ruling over them, far, far from that promise coming true. That promise seems empty. It is only the work of Christ that truly puts an end to the enemies of the people of God. As Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, Paul would say the last enemy to be defeated is death. And when Jesus comes up out of that grave, he has defeated death for all time. Scripture points to that. The Old Testament promises never come to fulfillment in the Old Testament. They never blossom into their full array in the Old Testament. There's always more left undone, and Jesus is the one who does that. Another setting where we could see this is Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the very next promise of God. Well, not the next, but the next major and important one, I think. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It takes a while for that story to get going. But by the time the people come back from Egypt, they are indeed a multitude of people. They are a great nation, and they are meant to be a blessing to all of the other nations around them. They are meant to be God's special people who then shine with the light of God's holiness and presence to all of the other people around them. And by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, which we will do in Sunday school next week, what do we find? Those people look exactly like all of the other nations. Far from being a light and a blessing to those people, the evil of those people have infiltrated the Israelites. This is redeemed some with David again, as David pushes back the enemies of God's people. But even that doesn't last long. Solomon does indeed have the Queen of Sheba and others come to him to see the great wisdom that is given to him by God. But before his time is done, he has again fallen for the foreign nations and he has taken wives from them. And not long after his death, the kingdom splits and everything falls apart again. Yet in Christ, this blessing comes true. All of the families of the earth will be blessed through you and it is only in Christ that this comes true. In Christ, the blessings of heaven have come not only to those who are physically related to Abraham, but to all who would confess faith in Jesus Christ. Revelation 7, 9 through 10, And behold, I looked at a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. That doesn't happen in the Old Testament. That barely happens in Israel. In Israel, there's but a remnant. In the New Testament, multitudes that no one can number from every tribe and tongue and nation and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne 
into the Lamb. We don't have time, nearly enough time, to speak of all the ways that the Old Testament points forward to Christ. We don't have time to look at the Psalms and to look at Psalm 2 and 22 and 46 and 110 and 96. We don't have time to think through Isaiah 53 or Jeremiah 31, or Ezekiel 36 and 37. We don't have time to look at all the ways the prophecies point toward the coming of this one true and living God in human form. But friend, they are there. The Old Testament scriptures witness strongly to one who is coming to set the world to rights. That one man is Jesus Christ. So listen well to the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. It has a certain gravity to it, a slope a direction that pulls you forward, ever forward. But by the time you reach the end of the Old Testament, all of that momentum ends nowhere until you get to Christ. And in Christ, all of the tumbles and the locks fall and the treasures are opened. In Christ, the code is made clear. What all of it was pointing forward to becomes obvious and beautiful. In Christ, the picture is completed and you can make sense of everything that you read. Without him, it is nothing but a mess and a jumble. These are all a witness to the truthfulness of what Christ has proclaimed himself to be and indeed has proclaimed himself to come to do to save his people from their sins. The scriptures confess this, the works of Jesus confess this, and the church has always confessed this. These three witness strongly to the fact that Jesus is not off his rocker. He is not lying to you. He is indeed the Lord of all the world. He is the judge of the living and the dead. And he is worthy of your faith and your trust because you have nothing else. So let us be careful, friends. Don't despise the riches of these witnesses. It is clear whether we look at the world around us or we listen to the words of Jesus here that many neglect the testimony that they find here and they do so to their peril. They refuse to come to Christ to have life as Jesus says here. They refuse to come to me that you might have life. They refuse to see the Father and to hear the Father and the works of the Son because they refuse to believe in Jesus. Don't count yourselves among them. Listen to the witness that has been given to you, not just the voice of Jesus, but the voice of all of those, the cacophony of all of the voices, whether it's the miracles, whether it is the voice of the church, whether it is the voice of mankind, whether it is the voice of the Old Testament crying out, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the very one who can free you from your sins. This is where we go to find our truth, our surety, our conviction that we can stand on this rock. Let that forever be the case with us. Let us then raise our minds and our hearts to sing a good confession as we lift up our voices in the power of the cross. Let us pray. Father, continue to work and use these witnesses in our lives. Allow us to see the majesty and the glory of the work of Jesus Christ, your Son, through the witness of men and women throughout history, throughout the miracles his hands have wrought and through the scriptures that were written so long ago for this very purpose. May these always draw us back to the truth because we so often feel like pulling away. For many who don't know you, who are stubborn in heart and mind, may the strong witness of these three pull them toward you through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
may praise and glory and honor be yours through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.